0: Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today is a great day because I'm hanging out with my friend, fellow coach, and author, Sathia Sam. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, man. Always a pleasure to be here, and uh, this is going to be fun.
0: Yeah, you have something really exciting to share—a um, brand new resource. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah. So, uh, following in your footsteps, Drew. I'm not. It's not only are we both Canadian, both coaches, uh, but I'm about to become an author. I, uh, I am. Yeah, working on. Well, I'm about to release uh, a book called "The Last Relapse," and um, it's funny, like. You know, there's tons of books in this space, as you know, and I I don't know about your own recovery journey. But for me, I was really impacted by books along the way. Um, But I think uh, everybody has a unique story. Everybody has a unique angle. And uh, when I was doing Deep Clean just on the side... I didn't have a lot of time to actually share what we were doing in our coaching program, um, just limited time and whatever else. And when I made the transition full-time last year, it was like, okay, I'm ready to start resourcing people. I don't want everything to have a barrier to entry. Some Something should just be there and available, um, which is why I love this podcast. I love your community. You know, just great ways for people to get plugged in right away. And for me, it's why, why I wrote the book, because I, um, I wanted people to have our resources just available on hand as easily as possible. So that's where The Last Relapse came from. It's exciting.
0: Super exciting! And by the time this episode is published, that book is available. You can find it in the show notes, and we're going to talk about one of the most important concepts in this book, and it's one that you and I are both really, really passionate about. Yeah. And yet, somehow, in the course of a hundred and something episodes, I've never talked about it. I've never actually done an episode on the topic of identity. The topic of identity is so so important it's maybe the most important what do you think yeah I think so and I, I was actually surprised when you said that
1: that you that you haven't done it because I we were commenting before we hit record but like I know this is like your jam you know like it's at the end of every single episode here it's the sign off and um I, I think the reason that you and I really resonate with the subject is uh, not only because we know it cerebrally that like you have to know who you are and you have to know that God loves you and you're his son and he's pleased with you but when you really experience that on a heart level, it's hard to not shut up about it. You know what I mean? Like, um, cause it's such a, it's just such a big deal. Sorry. It's hard to not talk about it. That's what I meant to say. Um, cause it's, it, it's so monumental. Like it just, it changes everything, you know? And I, I totally agree. I think what we're trying to do in people's lives to, you know, help them, um, you know, eliminate unwanted sexual behavior and, and really become the people God made them to be all of it starts and ends with identity.
0: Yes. And a lot of times we feel like my behavior or my level of freedom from porn determines my identity. Yeah. When in reality, what we've experienced is the exact opposite is that really experiencing the power of my identity as God's beloved son in Jesus Christ. That is what has transformed me. That is what has led to these huge breakthroughs in sexuality in self-regulation, in transforming relationships. Identity is not just like the ABCs of outgrowing porn. It's the A to Z.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, it's Amazon. It's the whole alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> it's got it all. But yeah, I, I I agree. And I think the interesting thing is like identity is not a new subject, right? Like People have been talking about this for a long time. I think what's different though is... Like, even the advancements that you and I have benefited from of people really understanding emotional psychology and and sort of wrapping that in spiritual language and spiritual concepts as well. So that, like, it's it's okay for us to, like, talk about our emotions in a spiritual context now. You know what I mean? Like, and it's okay that God sees us and all that. Like, I I don't know. For me, when I grew up in church, you couldn't go there. And the, the weird thing is that, like, how could you ever be truly affirmed for your true self? if you can't truly express who you are and experience unconditional love in the midst. Right. And, um, and so I think, I think we've, we've grown leaps and bounds in this area, but it is so relevant for, you know, for people who do want to outgrow porn and unwanted sexual behavior. It's like, yeah, you have to, you have to be able to experience his love right now. This isn't about you getting free so that you could, so then you then deserve it or earn it. It's just, it's about right now in this moment, realizing there is nothing you could do to make him love you less or love you more? Like, it's it, he loves you perfectly right now.
0: Sathya, in your book, The Last Relapse, you talk about two big questions. The two big identity questions that we all need to answer. What are those questions?
1: So, I think we all know the first question, um, or you probably heard it in some some sort of form. It's, who are you? That, that's really what we're addressing here when we talk about identity. And I think for guys especially, we tend to answer that question with our vocation, our accomplishments, uh, maybe even a, a role that we play in the family or something, which is, you know, again, they're all understandable. Um, I think that the issue when we start answering that question with titles is then our value is intrinsically connected to how well we carry out that title. So in the book, we sort of talk about what it looks like to dismantle that. So for me, it's like, well, okay, yeah, I'm a recovery coach. And and you will see that on my social media platforms and everything. That is how I present myself to the world for sure. But in my heart of hearts, I know that actually that's not really my identity. And on the days where I feel like, you know, I, I can't get my clients past that wall or, um, or you know, like I, I put out a proposal to, you know, get pitched for the book or something else. And people say no. My identity is separate from that. I'm not. I'm not up in arms over like, oh my gosh, what am
0: I going to do? Um, there's a security there. So let's talk about some of those identities: husband, father, single person, uh, Christian. I think even even the idea of being a Christian, like being a good Christian, can become one of those things that gives us value.
1: Oh, big time! Yeah. So I mean, you're talking to like I. I am a, a fourth generation pastor. I was like the Sunday school superstar. I mean, I knew all about, you know, earning, earning your value and your affection that way. I actually, uh, it's funny. This is like, you know how, when you start digging into um, your story a little bit, you have these random memories that come up that you're like, I don't, I would have never thought of that. Like, but it just kind of pops up. So I had one of those uh, lately and it, it ties into what we're talking about. So in the first grade, I don't know why, but I used to like, I used to pick my lip, like my lips would be chapped a lot. So I'd pick my lip and then usually I'd pick it to the point where it kind of bled a little bit. Um, and the reason I did it is because I got attention from my teacher. Kind of weird, right? But like, I, again, kind of makes sense. Obviously, you and I understand why we would do these things. But, um, but I think the point is that like uh, for me, like that little kid trying to get the attention or whatever else, it's very easy. Um, it's very easy to just be like, okay, I am worth love based on, you know, how well you affirm me how much you respect me, um, how society views this sort of uh, title or that kind of thing. You know, we give such high esteem to doctors, lawyers, engineers, and, and rightfully so. These are educated people who have done their work. Um, but actually, their value as a person is no different than the homeless guy on the street. And and somehow in our minds, we we know that, but we don't actually really apply it to ourselves. We just know it when we talk about others and we're trying to bring some encouragement. But to actually reverse the direction of that message and really take it inward that's a big one for a guy to process um to say that you know actually how well you perform at home doesn't determine your value uh you know how well you perform at work doesn't determine your value whether you have great accomplishments or or really nothing nothing in maybe a certain area to really brag about or whatever your value is exactly the same that that's a that's a bit of a mind trip there
0: I 100% agree with you. And it's actually really helpful for me to hear that right now. I feel myself just taking a deeper breath. Wow. All of the different roles that I play in life have nothing to do with who I am. Yeah. At the deepest level. At the deepest level. I mean, on some level, I am a white male 29-year-old who lives in the United States, specifically in Santa Barbara, California. And that has implications. But all of that is fleeting. It's temporary. And what's eternal, what's most important about me and you is that we are God's beloved sons. And in us, he is well-pleased.
1: Yeah. And what what really drives this question, like the reason this is such a fundamental question is because the two things that we all need in life are affection and affirmation. And if we, if we don't get it from this place of our, our godly spiritual identity we will inevitably find it in some other place um, and any other place is going to be it's sinking sand so to speak it, it it has a a timeline on it it's only a matter of time before something changes that dynamic and our value suddenly comes into question and it's hard like uh, it's easy to talk theory but you know i i think back to a couple of years ago when i had made a transition from local church pastoring to doing what i was doing here with deep clean and you know, it, it was really difficult because I would step into church on Sunday mornings. Everybody knew my name. They knew who I was. They loved my preaching and my worship leading. And suddenly I'm not getting that affirmation the way I'm accustomed to. I'm not even really getting much of it at all. When I first, you know, you know what it's like when you're first starting something out, like you have to really encourage yourself, you know, and just trying to find that place of like, okay, no, Cynthia, you don't need to vibe for those likes on Instagram or whatever it is you're you're loved. It's okay. Like just just stay in this moment. Just relax. You're good. Um and and finding that place again. I think it's it's something that for me I've tried to work on really hard and it's it's something that we we try to teach our guys as well because we know it's paramount to their long-term success.
0: Absolutely. And when we talk with men who are attached to porn, I think there are some other identities that I would like to hear your thoughts on. Specifically the identity of I am a porn addict, yeah, <laughs> oh man, this might be a whole,
1: the whole episode right here um i and I think the the first interview I did with you, drew, we talked about this, but i I really believe that your your beliefs matter so much, and in some ways beliefs determine behavior uh now i, I don't want to again i don't want to go too far on that and say that's all about just it's just this mental game, and we're just trying to kind of like declare the right things until they become the truth but Ultimately, how you how you see yourself is really going to drive how you behave. And I think it's very dangerous to identify as I am an addict of any kind, let alone a porn addict. Because if you believe you are an addict, then would you not stay addicted by faith? If that's what you put your faith in, then how how else would an addict behave than to simply stay addicted or, or to engage in some sort of compulsive behavior? So we we definitely do not use that language at all. Um you you might have been addicted. Sure, that that's the behavioral element. Um but you are not an addict. That that's not really who you are. Um and you're not doing yourself any favors by addressing yourself with that moniker in, in my opinion. So that that's our stance. I don't know what what do you think, Drew?
0: On the one hand, I want to affirm what is often behind that statement of I am an addict. It's often an attempt at humility, at humbling myself to say you know what, I really do have a problem and it has gotten to the point that I need help. And for men to admit that is so courageous. It is so humble. People are breaking free from denial sometimes when they say that. And I want to absolutely bless and affirm that part of someone's journey and also acknowledge the limitations like that's only going to take you so far. And I think even sometimes for guys who say, yes, I am a sex addict or I am a porn addict, even your recovery or your healing can become compulsory. It's like, okay, I have to do these things because I'm an addict. And it's all based on fear and anxiety and, and trying to get a sense of control rather than true freedom and healing. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: And I, I guess it, that,
1: that's sort of the essence of it, isn't it? It's like uh, what drives a lot of people or at least it's certainly in the mix uh, when they are engaged in compulsive behavior is control. Right? It's this it's this thing of like wanting to control something. We talk about the I don't know if you if you've ever heard of this before, we, we call it the shame fear control cycle. Um, shame drives you to this fear of being found out and to compensate, you then control the situation. and um, and it's true if, if you really have any identifiers, or labels or monikers that are going to reinforce you just controlling a situation. In some ways, all you're doing is preserving the shame that drove it in the first place.
0: So for me personally, it's much more helpful to acknowledge my sexual urges and attractions and impulses and say, that's not who I am. Yeah. (laughs) It's a thought, it's a feeling. It's part of me, but it's not all of me and it's not the truest thing about me. Yeah. I also want to give one more comment about another one of the answers we can often have to the question, who are you? Uh, At least in the husband material community, people identify themselves by their attractions, usually to say, I am same sex attracted. How would you respond to that, Sathya? Ooh, that's a a dicey little one. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's
1: it's kind of interesting because this is a, a new phenomenon, isn't it? Like, even um, if you think about sort of the surge of the LGBTQ community as well, like there's there's sort of been this affiliation with identity, who you are based on orientation, um, even based on gender, right? Which gender is like a biological kind of thing. Um, but it's interesting if you kind of look at it through a spiritual lens, the, the concept of identity is it actually it has never anything to do with our physical or even our emotional attributes. So I think um, it's probably better to say I have SSA. You know, I, I have the attraction. That's there. That's a the thing. We're not trying we're not saying you should just deny it. Um, you definitely want to acknowledge it and, and be open about it. But I think again, wearing it as an identity is just strange um, because for me, my my sexual orientation and my gender, um, they're, they're components of who I am for sure, but they don't really define me. And of course, it's easy for me to say, I get that when, when I'm sort of in the mainstream line because I am uh, a heterosexual male. Um, but nonetheless, I still think it's important we don't confuse those things and, and drift so far into our orientation or our preferences that uh, we lose
0: sight of our real spiritual identity. That was so well said. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that was a really tough question. And I would love to hear your feedback on that in the Husband Material community. If you are part of it, for me, my sexual attractions have been much more flexible and fluid. And so it's almost like if we if we try to define ourselves by our attractions, gosh, like what happens when you're attracted to something weird or really strange? Um, Yeah. And so so what you said really applies to more than SSA. It applies to any attraction. It applies to any kind of fantasy. So I really appreciate that. And it's very, very relevant. Now, there's also that second question. The first question was, who are you? Okay. So in Luke chapter
1: three, Jesus is baptized. And, um, and when he is baptized, he, it says in that translation that the, the heavens rendered and from it came a, a loud voice. The, the voice that we always hear at the end of every single one of these episodes. It's God's, God the Father saying to his son, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. In Luke 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness, and uh, for 40 days, he fasts. And it says at the end of those 40 days, he's tempted by the devil. So this dude's hungry. He's worn down. He's had like this iconic experience, and then he is in sort of like a valley season, so to speak. And, and here the enemy is trying to capitalize, and he says, Hey, like, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Which, of course, is is just brilliant on the devil's part because, like, of course, the guy's hungry. Surely, if Jesus had any vulnerabilities, it would be to exude some of his powers and make a meal. And it's interesting because we sort of perceive that as like, oh, yeah, Jesus was tempted to turn stone into bread. Actually, no. The the real temptation here was for Jesus to partner with the lie that he had to prove himself. Mm -hmm. Because the enemy started by saying, if you are the son of God... When in the mountaintop moment, the father said, you are my beloved son and in you, I am well pleased. And it is so the enemy, not, not to try to get us to do something that we shouldn't do, but to try to get us to believe that what God has spoken of about us needs to be proven. When in reality, it is truth, time tested, doesn't need any more proof, period. It's a final sentence. And so the second, the second question here is, is, who told you? Because, you know, if my mom said, Sathya, you're my beloved son and you, I'm well pleased. I would really appreciate that. But it, it's, it's different. It's, it's, like it's like my mom's going to buy my book. But like, that doesn't make me a New York Times bestselling author, you know? Like, like, it's nice. And of course, my mom's going to support me. But the, the source of our identity statement matters tremendously. Because if we cannot trust the source, if they're not reliable, then we run the risk that they change their mind. So if my boss fires me from my job and my vocation is my identity, then I'm left with nothing. I have no sense of self-worth and no sense of value. Not only because I made the mistake of defining myself by my vocation, but because the source of my identity statement was actually from somebody who could change their mind. But what we know about the father is that he is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So we can safely conclude that so too, God the Father will not change his mind about us. And that is paramount to this. It's not enough just that we know our identity statement. We actually have to hear it. We, we, we have to hear it in our heart of hearts from God the Father to really embody this thing and to really actually let it sink into the innermost parts of our being.
0: And I hear somebody Who's thinking to themselves, well, yeah, that was true of Jesus that God said that about him. But what about me? Um, I'm just a hopeless sinner. In John chapter 15 is probably my favorite verse of the whole Bible where Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Mm. Wow. Every single truth about Jesus is, Every single way that the Father delights in Jesus and loves his son from eternity past all the way to forever, that's how he feels about us. That's what he says about us. Mm. It's mind-boggling, it's heart melting. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's it's really powerful. And I, I I think that that's a really good point you brought up because. I remember having that resistance of like, sure, that's all well and good for Jesus, but you don't you, like you don't know what I've done, or you don't know who I am, or you know, you can kind of fill in your blank there. Uh one, one of my favorite scriptures in this conversation is Romans 8.29, where it refers to Jesus. I think it's Romans 8.29, it refers to Jesus as our elder brother. Elder brother Jesus. So really interesting. And like, again, like Jesus is is the the Time, like, timeless son of God. He's perfect. He's the spotless lamb. None of that changes. But it's interesting because the work of Christ on the cross actually adopts us into this family. And, and so the same way that he is a son of God, we too are sons and daughters of God. It's, it's littered throughout scripture. And I, I think it's a good thing for us to remember because it, what it's actually doing for the person who maybe has that reservation or has that thing of like, that's nice for Jesus. What it's actually exposing is that you still think your value is based on what you do because the, it's not, it's not anything that we could have ever done for ourselves. It's, the work of Christ. He's the one who afforded us this opportunity. And to me, that's the most frustrating thing in the world. I would way rather be in control of this situation, you know, and feel like I'm the one who's, who could, who could earn it and who could actually take some charge here. But, um, it's completely beyond our control. It, it, it's already done and, and he did it for our sakes. And we get to kind of walk in it and live out that truth. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal.
0: It's a huge deal. And it's actually the antidote to our sexual brokenness in a big way. Because every time we face sexual temptation, underneath that temptation is that same strategy that Satan used on Jesus of questioning his identity. And so underneath the question of, am I going to give in? To my sexual urges and attractions in this moment or not is the question of who am I and who told me. That's it. And you know, I I think one thing that's
1: important for your listeners to understand is this is not something that you, you can't, you don't just walk away from the episode and you're like, perfect. Like I got my answers to both questions and like, I'm good to go. It's not a mental exercise. Although hopefully what we're talking about is, is at least a starting point if nobody's really gone into this much.
0: So let's get really practical. How do you build what you call a bulletproof identity?
1: Okay, so um, I, I think it, it is piecing together what we've talked about. But the to me, the real value and what really changed things for me in this arena was actually experiencing God's love in this way. And so we already kind of talked about it a little bit. Uh, one of the things I'm really big on is learning to hear that still small voice of God And learning to hear it daily, like really getting that regular revelation from God. And I think that that penetrates the heart in a way that just about nothing else can. Um, But I think there's also an element of sort of working through parts of your past. And one of the things that I had really did have to work through, and I, I would say still work through to this day, is breaking out of what we call a performance mentality. And the performance mentality is, it's really what we've been discussing the whole time. It's that you are what you do. Your worth is based on how well you perform. And it's interesting, Drew, because it's, it's easy to, I guess, maybe pinpoint this in like an athletic environment where it's like um, there, there's a lot of competition, a lot of pressure to you know, reach a certain standard. And if you don't, you get cut from the team or you don't get played or whatever. That can, that can really affect a guy and the way he sees himself. Um, but what we tend to do is we tend to translate these mentalities and mindsets to God, and we think that God as well only loves us. He's only pleased with us based on how well we do something or how well we don't do something. I, I had a friend, you know, I used to do tons of uh, worship music and was a, a traveling recording artist and all that stuff. And I had a friend, probably one of the best guitar players that I know personally. And I remember him after church saying uh, one day, like, he's like, oh, that that set was really difficult for me. And I was like, oh, what's going on? And he's like, oh man, you didn't hear like, I hit that bum G minor in like the second song or whatever. And I was like. I was like, what? What?" I was like, dude, I didn't catch it. He's like, I just know that every time I hit that bum note, like there's God who's like, oh man, like you almost gave me your best today. Like better luck next time. Or, you know, he said something like that. And I was just like, dude, what are you talking? Are you serious? Like, what are you talking about? And yet it it was that like, that's what it looks like when we kind of translate our earthly experiences to our understanding and our relationship with our heavenly father. So building that bulletproof identity, a lot of it actually revolves around um, healing from some of those past experiences for sure, um, but also really learning to see God for for who he is apart from your baggage, you know, and apart from from the junk and the lies and the things that can kind of cloud how we see him.
0: I love that. And I also heard you say something to the effect of we need to hear regularly, like we need some frequency because the messages of performance are coming at us daily so we also need to have the messages of love and our identity in christ also coming at us
1: yeah 100 yeah it's one of one of the things i pray for my clients regularly is that god's voice would be the loudest in their ears you know it doesn't it the, the frequency is important for sure um and i i think the volume is really important like We're dealing with so much noise, as you kind of mentioned, like just so much clutter of stimulus and voices and opinions and everything else. And um, what what we're trying to do is ensure that it is God's voice that is really directing the way we view ourselves and as a result, the way we behave, you know, the lifestyle that we engage in while we're here on planet Earth.
0: What's an example of this? Can we make it? into a, a real story that can help us see what it looks like?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I actually talked about this in the book. I had a client, um, and we call him Barry in the book. So for our purposes today, we'll call him Barry as well. Barry grew up in a home where everything had to kind of be well put together. So it, it's, not, um, it's not that they were like super wealthy or well-to-do, that kind of thing. But just everything in the house had to be organized. And as a matter of fact, if he would um, cook in the kitchen, as an example, and he would put something back, but not quite exactly where it was supposed to go, his mom would always make a comment, always force him to correct it or make the correction herself. There was just this constant pressure of like, it's got to be just right. And if it wasn't, you knew that you could experience, you know, mom's wrath, her rebuttal, her rebuke, whatever it might be. So he grew up this way, and then when he reached adulthood, he was struggling with porn, anxious at work every single day, um, and, and all of it was stemming from expectations, like people having these expectations of him and this fear of, what if I do not meet their expectations? So we start to just dive into this, you know, and into the relationship with his mother and the dynamic, and what we start to realize is um, the area that had suffered the most was his walk with God. So with like he had a, a good relationship with his wife, given the circumstances, still, you know, amiable with his family, fr- uh, his family rather, and some pretty meaningful friendships. But with God, it was just like he's way over there, just totally disconnected. And what we found is that actually he had basically transferred all of the experiences with his mom to his relationship with God. So it was like well I am he's so conscious of his shortcomings always a danger in in this space especially right we can be so consumed with our shortcomings that he just was totally disqualified to approach God even in the slightest and so we started just talking about this and 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 what I actually did was I guided him through a journaling process um, because in that journaling process, we actually teach you how to just hear that still small voice of God on a you know consistent and regular basis, and he's he's hearing God speak these loving affirming words that to him he is like there's no way like he isn't he he cannot comprehend that this could possibly be real, and we're like dude yes it is real like that's th- that's actually the truth it just sounds so foreign because you believed a lie your whole life. And and as we kind of started to work through it, a really cool thing, like, you know, it's not that his addiction got healed overnight, although, like, he is doing eons better than when he first started. It's not that he isn't still anxious sometimes, um, but the difference now is that he knows who he is. Like, there there's a stability there to Barry's life that was not there before, so that when he and his wife encounter conflict... He's not spinning into disarray because he's let his wife down or he's falling short of some perfectionistic standard. You know, he's just he has been able to find stable footing in his day to day life and and feels like he can actually handle himself again. So that that's kind of what it looks like when you actually go through this process. So then I, I think the, the cool thing that we observed in Barry's life, and, and this is something we teach our clients now, is he started to become much more interested in looking after himself. Because it's interesting, actually, like if you don't have much of a self-esteem or self-worth, then the whole conversation about self-care is kind of irrelevant. Because why would you take care of something that has no value? So one of the things that happened in Barry's life is he started to kind of wonder like, okay, what does it actually look like for me to look after ourselves? You've heard of the five love languages, right? By Gary Chapman.
0: Right. Physical touch, quality time.
1: Yeah. Words of affirmation, gifts and acts of service. So um, for us, it's been one of the most valuable tools like in my marriage, um, you know, just knowing my wife's love languages and the the basic premise for people who don't know it is that you and I all have a love tank and we are at our best when that tank is full. But of course, the cares of life gradually kind of just drain the resources. And so um, when your partner knows your love languages, your top ranking love languages fill your tank the fastest. And so for me, quality time is a big one. So when I get quality time with my wife, like we could literally be on the couch um, and like we're not necessarily talking even all the time, but like even just knowing that we're in the same room together and we're enjoying a show, I love that. That really fills up my tank way more than when she cooks me dinner. Now, I still love it when she cooks me dinner. It fills up my tank for sure, um, but it's not the same as when we get quality time together. So anyways, that's the, that's the basic paradigm of the five love languages and i've I've heard it typically used in a relationship context, marriage dating or whatever else it may be and of course parent child relationships as well. Gary Chapman has expanded his repertoire a little bit there um but we've actually taken it to another level and we teach guys how to use the five love languages for self care and the basic idea, yeah, I know right like the basic idea is like, look if If we know that these sort of avenues are so valuable for you to feel loved and and to feel good about yourself and to be in an optimal state, then let's not rely solely on others to do that. Like, of course, I I have a degree of dependency on my wife to help me fill that tank. I'm not going to try to be Mr. Independent and do it all on my own, but I can contribute as well. You know, I can handle myself in a way that I am also filling that love tank. And um, and that's uh, that's what we taught Barry to do. And it's what we teach other guys to do is to learn to apply these five love languages to themselves. So would it be okay if I just give you some examples? Or you look, do you have a question, Drew?
0: Yeah, I'm wondering what it looks like to give a gift to myself or to do physical touch with myself.
1: Okay, okay, cool. So I'm going to get there. Those are definitely the most uh, like dicey ones for sure. But let, let, let me start with the easy ones just to get the ball rolling here. So if you're a quality time guy, uh, in the context of self-care, that might look like in your calendar, setting aside two non-negotiable hours of the week that are just for you. And maybe you go on a walk, uh, maybe you journal, maybe you call up a friend. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't necessarily have to be alone either. These aren't necessarily solo activities. But you're just saying these two hours, they're mine. I'm going to do whatever is going to serve me the best. So my wife and I actually do that um, much longer than two hours. Like we Sabbath every week and we probably spend about half of our Sabbath together and the other half we spend alone recharging our batteries however we need to. We're both quality time people. So that's just kind of the way that one works out. Words of affirmation. So I, um, I'll i continue to put myself on the altar here as much as I can. Um, for words of affirmation, I actually have a document. It's almost 300 pages long now of encouraging words that people have spoken over my life since 2010. So I just made a habit of dating it, who gave the word, and then writing down the specifics of it. And I revisit that on a pretty regular basis because words of affirmation are my second love language. So for me, it's just really valuable for me to remind myself about things that people have spoken about me. And journaling would be another great example. Like you're building a history here of things that God has spoken about you, um, of reflecting on you know other experiences you've had with people, so that that can be really valuable. Physical touch. Let's talk about physical touch. So, uh, really interesting one because, of course, like we're talking about, um, you know, outgrowing unwanted sexual behaviors. So, how do you actually like show self care and love towards yourself in a way that's physically appropriate? And um, I'll give you a client example actually, and he came up with this on his own. I was super impressed. But one of the things he told me is that so for him, physical touch was his his primary love language. And he said, one of the things he loves doing is getting a massage. And he said, like, it's not, it's not a sexual thing. There's nothing sensual about it. But he's like, I just feel really loved when I get a massage. So I was like, okay. Um, he, he was in, in Europe. So I just asked him, how much does it cost for you to get a massage? He was like, oh, I don't know. It's like, it's like 20 or 30 euros. I was like, okay, could you budget for that once a month? He was like, of course. I'm like, okay, dude, do that budget for it once a month. And it's just this little thing in his calendar that reminds him, oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually worth it. I'm worth myself spending a little bit of money and taking a little bit of time to do something that communicates to my primary love language.
0: So it's an embodied way to receive that truth. Yes. That I really am the beloved.
1: Yeah. I, I remember, you know, um, one time somebody did a sermon on how do you show love to God using the five love languages? And when he got to the subject of physical touch, of course, that was the million dollar question. Like, how do you experience that with an invisible God? And he was like, it's not as much about the touch as much as it's about the physical expression. Maybe it means that you raise your hands in worship. Or, um, or that you, you move your body a little bit, or you you know, like maybe you dance. Depending on the church you're part of, or whatever, he's just giving some examples. But yeah, it, the, you use the right word, Drew. It's the embodiment. It's it's just it's that expression physically that allows you to just demonstrate love and care towards yourself.
0: I love it. So it sounds like the same would apply for gifts and acts of service.
1: Exactly. So acts of service, um, that just depends. Like everybody's going to be different. I'm like a bit of a neat freak. So sometimes the best gift I can give myself in the realm of acts of service is just cleaning my office. You know, it's just cleaning it up and organizing things. Gifts might just be that you budget a little bit every month. Uh, don't be re- don't, don't be crazy about it because it could become a, a separate compulsive behavior, but you could just budget a little bit of money that you, that you set aside to get yourself something nice. Like if you have a beard, buy yourself a beard, a beard kit, or you know what I mean? Like there's just different things you can do like that um, that just show yourself you're valuable and, and you're worth it.
0: Yes. And all of these things are filling up that love tank. Yes. And in my experience, when my love tank is the fullest, my lust tank is the emptiest.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Because we all know that the reason we are seeking pornography or any other kind of sexual content, it usually is to try to fill that that love tank, right? And what happens is whatever we fill it with that's lustful inherently, it evaporates. It disappears. It gives you the illusion that you filled up your tank, but actually you're just as empty. You're probably emptier afterwards than you were before. So that's ex- that's exactly it. We are at our best when the love tank is full and our ability to either, re- whether it's resist a temptation or simply just become more focused on things that are more valuable and meaningful in our lives, those things become just way more normal when the love tank is full.
0: And that's how you get to the point where you don't have to fight pornography all the time because you just don't need it as much.
1: Yeah, it's why, it's why you and I don't have um, blockers on our computer still to preserve you know, our six years of freedom or whatever it is. It's like, no, there's, we, we understand how to kind of put ourselves in that position where we're regularly set up for success.
0: And that's what I mean when I say outgrowing porn. It's becoming a sexual adult who's able to meet needs in a healthy way rather than depending on porn, or something else to do so.
1: Yeah, exactly. It. And really, the cool thing is when we teach guys this framework, what we're actually teaching them is not not how to apply the five love languages so they can take care of themselves. What we're teaching them is how do you take responsibility for getting your needs met in a healthy way that has no long-term or short-term repercussions. And um, and it's, it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing what happens when guys, I think, get the permission to do that and then get some really practical ways mm-hmm. to carry it out.
0: Oh, that's so good. I feel like we have a a two-part episode here, but they go so well together. Because if we're trying to do this, and we're trying to find a way to to fill my love tank, but we don't have that deep sense of our identity, then we haven't started in the right place. Yes. First, it starts with answering those two questions. Who am I and who told me? Allowing that to drive our decisions.
1: Yeah, and I was just going to say, I think when you... When you answer those questions um, appropriately, self care is the most natural response, right? Like when you really, when you realize what God's love for you actually means, and how great you really are, you know, and how amazing you are, and to think that there's nothing you could do that would ever tarnish God's perfect love for you, then the most natural response is to take care of yourself and and to do everything that you possibly can. And it, of course, it means that you outgrow porn and unwanted sexual behavior, but it also means that you do these little things daily, weekly, and monthly that convey to yourself. They just remind you, oh, yeah, I am valuable. I am worth it. And I'm not just going to say it. I'm actually going to put my money where my mouth is and act on it as well.
0: So good. And I've also discovered that while the natural outflow of really living in my identity is self care, the other result is feeling resilient. Like, I can do hard things. I can press into the discomfort and the challenges and the in-betweens that are really tough in any stage of life. Like, they are not too big. They're they're manageable. On the one hand, our identity gives us permission to practice self-care and it empowers us for our purpose.
1: Exactly. And I think what you said is really important there. It also means like if uh, if in theory, somebody perfectly understood God's love for them at a heart level, nothing is a threat to their security, right? Nothing is a threat to their psychological safety. And that's pretty powerful when you really think about it. And you're right. it That's actually really empowering. It's not that I, I work through or like I, I face my, Fetishes or my attractions or whatever head on, and I reach that place of security. It's that actually I'm secure in God's love, and that permits me to go there without any worry, any concern, or any repercussion. Um, like the world is your oyster, you know. It's it's really cool.
0: <laughs> well, for you, Sathya, what is your favorite thing about your identity?
1: Oh man, I love that question. Um, and for me, it's actually what I just touched on. It is the security, the security of self. To me, there's nothing like it. And I, I think the reason for that, Drew, is because I lived in so much shame for so many years. And shame is such a rattling experience of yourself and certainly of your security within yourself. And to me, the, my favorite part about just really embodying God's love for me and understanding it at a fundamental heart level, I'm still working on it for sure. But the parts that I have uh, you know, experienced, it's just that security. It's just like you know, when my wife and I are in conflict, it's like, okay, this is going to be all right. We're going to figure it out. Um, And God's going to see us through it. You know, it's, it's that when one of my triggers does pop up, it's not like this, oh my gosh, am I going to slip? And suddenly like, I am no longer able to help people. It's just like, that's okay. Like God's got me. I know he's built me up. I know we're good to go. Um, That security within self, to me, there's, there's nothing like it.
0: I'm just ruminating and meditating on that right now. Like, oh, that security in self. Isn't that what we long for. There are so many words in this book that you've defined for me in a really helpful way. And so I hope everybody picks up a copy. You can find a link in the show notes. It's called The Last Relapse. And it's really good.
1: Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and you know, my, my real encouragement, some, somebody who was helping me um, kind of get the word up about my book was reminding me, um, this is actually not a book. This is hope. And, you know, that's why we called it the last relapse, because uh, you and I know a a last relapse is actually possible. Um, And in fact, if you if you really dig into some of the stuff we talked about today, it's not just possible, it's probable. Uh, You can really set yourself up to to have your last relapse and to walk into a life of of lasting freedom. And I think that's that's what I really want to see. I want to see your listeners experience that. So, yeah, it's the last relapse. And uh, I'd love for for anybody who's interested to go grab a copy.
0: And this week in the Husband Material community, Sathia is going to do a giveaway. Yeah, I, I love the Husband
1: Material community. I've been part of it for a while. I haven't always been super active in it, um, although it's something I'm working on. And yeah, I, I hope my hope was just that we could be a little bit generous here, Drew, and um, and give people a chance to win a copy of the book. I think that'd be fun.
0: So you can join the Husband Material community and see a recent post from Sathia to enter the giveaway. And ultimately, guys... If you take one thing away from this episode, I hope that it sinks in a little bit more deeply today and every day that you are God's beloved Son, and in you, He is well pleased.